Good morning, Grace. That's a strong good morning. I've been asked to join the choir, so maybe they want me to sing alto. If you know anything about alto, that's the ladies' part. So I think I'd do better with bass, Ron. What's that other one? There's bass and then tenor. Huh? Tenor. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that one. It is very good to see all of you guys today. And um, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here to worship with us. And I trust that um, we've all come prepared to worship. As we looked at that video, <clears throat> I was reminded about a passage in Acts. I don't know how your prayer life is or how much you think about prayer, but um, it's something that I've always assumed that we could all work at a little bit harder. Um, in the upper room, after the ascension of the Lord, now remember, <clears throat> I mean, that window there for the disciples, those 40 days plus, that, that lot going on, a lot of activity in there with the Lord. And um, from the crucifixion of Christ to uh, the burial of Christ to the resurrection of Christ, and then you had the 40 days and <clears throat> until his ascension and Post-ascension, you're like, you know, what are these guys going to do? And we know that the Lord had told them that they would be uh, his witnesses, his martyrs, which had to be a pretty rough thing to hear in some ways because their life would literally be required of them. And so what are you doing right after that? Uh, that's what we find in Acts chapter 1. I wanted you to take your Bibles and let me just read Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. If you'd please stand as we honor the Lord in reading his word. This is right after the ascension of the Lord. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Look at verse 14. Here's their activity. These all with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, of all the things that you might expect, <clears throat> it's interesting to me that right after the Lord ascends, they come together and they pray. When you think about all the different things that are going on in the church these days, with the world these days, with families, there's a lot of, of trouble in families today. We need to be praying. Praying that the Lord would change the hearts and the minds 
of people and direct them toward him. And the greatest prayer that we can have for people is to pray for their salvation and to pray that the Lord would direct them in their steps and that they would follow him in fellowship with him on a regular basis. Isn't it great to know that our Lord loves us and that there's nothing that goes on in our lives that has not already passed through his hands? He knows. And a lot of the things that pass into our lives, that come into our lives, are hurtful things. And there's no one on this planet that cares more, that loves more, than our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, the Bible tells us that um, He could identify with us in all points, but without sin. That's the part of it that, that we struggle with. And so let's pray that even as those of us who are in Christ, we would be more faithful to go to our Heavenly Father and commit our ways to Him each and every day. No matter what's going on in your life, guys, I have encouragement for you. God knows, and He commands us to bring our lives to Him on a daily basis. And you know what He, he says to us? That if we bring these things to Him, Paul wrote in Philippians, that if we bring these things to Him, that the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension and all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And we can never be reminded of that enough. Let's pray. Father, we would confess that we may not come to you enough. I find it interesting that the first activity that we have from your word after your ascension is the disciples along with women in the upper room praying, coming to you, Father. Um, I'm so thankful, Father, that we can come to you because of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, who, who took on the sin debt that we have and paid completely for our sins. And those of us in this room who belong to you, Father, I pray that we won't be a stranger in the sense that we go long periods of time without coming to you. Father, I pray that this morning that we are ready to receive what you have from your word that we would consider the things that you say to us that we might consider how we must change in ways in our lives that would bring us in closer fellowship with you and for those father that may not know you this morning my prayer is that your spirit would convict them of their need for the Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for allowing us to meet together this morning, Father, and we pray that what we do 
would bring honor to you and glory to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's continue to worship our Savior by singing the love of God, as Thad was talking about, God's wonderful love. Praise 
be seated. I hope as we sing that, but I know whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Famous saying that Paul made. I almost like for us to listen to the words of the song, Oh, my soul will rest on Jesus. The love of God gives us the reason to rest on him through all the things that happen in everyday life. All the things that can come on us, our soul can rest on him. Listen to the words as the choir sings.
Let's pray together, maybe. Praise the Lord. Amen. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the love that you have shown to us. Especially the love that comes with Christ coming and dying in our place. And Lord, we have this wonderful hope, hope that, not a hope so, God, but the hope that we have in Christ, that one day we will be with you in eternity. And Father, we will live forever in your presence. We will sing forever your glory. We will honor you forever and ever. And Lord, we are so thankful. And we just praise you this morning for this time that we can come together to worship you, to listen to your word, pray together. Lord, just be your family and honoring you in everything that happens. God, thank you. We praise you this morning. These things I pray in your son's holy name. Amen. When I was in the fourth grade, which was a couple of minutes ago, I had a teacher named Miss Jefferson. Miss Jefferson had long nails. And when Miss Jefferson wanted to get your attention, she would take those long nails and she would come up to you and put the nail nails in the bottom of your ear. And it was designed to get your attention. I don't know that fake nails existed back then, but she had some long nails. Did they exist back then, or do we know? She would take those nails, and she would come up to you and pinch your ear, and immediately she had your attention. Sometimes she would take those nails and run them on the chalkboard just to... I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know the word at the time. Irritate us as kids. All designed to get our attention. I would like to have your attention today. I don't have long nails. and I'm not going to yell at you. But this text that we are working our way through is critical in terms of our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Remember that in our beginning time, uh, our introductory time into 1 John, we said that there were two primary views of the book. It's either a test of relationship book, meaning these things are intended to get us to think about are we really saved or is it a test of fellowship book primarily and I would say that it is a test of fellowship book primarily and from time to time he hones in on salvation specifically Um, and so I think it's important for us as we consider our fellowship with the father and with his son Jesus Christ 
that we would adopt the language of John, which was he wanted these believers to have joy in their fellowship with the Lord. And we know that from chapter 1, verse 3. That's why he wrote the book. He wanted them to experience the joy of fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So if someone comes up to you and asks you the question, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Many of you would say yes. But if someone was to follow up that question with, how is your fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, on a daily basis... What would be your answer? It's a good question. I think the first question's asked a good bit. I don't think the second question is asked much at all. But it's one that we need to consider. It's very important. And as we've worked our way up through 1 John to this point, we have found some hurdles to fellowship. That walking in darkness, sin hinders one's fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Is that not true? It absolutely is true. And we can get going down the wrong path, and we can be far away in our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We have examples in the Bible of that. David had a period of time in his life that was dark. So did Solomon. You advance yourself to the New Testament... Um, in the book of 2 Timothy, we're told that Demas had forsaken Paul because he loved the present world. And some interpret that and say, well, he just wasn't saved. No, I believe Demas absolutely knew the Lord. He was in love with the world. So why would he do that? Why do Christians do that today? How do they get to a point, how does a person get to the point that they're in love with the world? In fact, in the next section that we look at, we're going to see that he, another hindrance to fellowship with the Father and with His Son is loving the world and the things in the world. And we have to be very careful, and this is just a warning, that we don't look sideways, but that we allow ourselves to be examined by the Spirit of God to see whether or not we are in love with the world and the things of the world. Is it possible for a believer to be in love with the world and the things of the world? Absolutely possible. It happens all the time. And we sit back if we're in fellowship with the Father and Son and we go, how in the world does that happen? I think there's an answer for us. In fact, right in this section. That affects every stage of one's spiritual growth and that is the Scriptures. It is so powerful, this text. It, it has, has me on the edge of my seat just taking in what John is writing to these believers and truly assessing where I am, not you, but where am I in my spiritual stage of growth. And it's been, it's been humbling to consider it, to truly consider it. Um. I have spent literally hours thinking about, Lord, where am I? And I hope that you will spend time 
after you leave today thinking about whether or not you're a child, a young man, or a father. As I said last time, I don't think there are too many, after taking a, look, a hard look at this, I'm not sure there are too many spiritual fathers and mothers in the church. There are, but I'm not sure how many. I wonder, because of what is said about the stages of this spiritual growth that John speaks of. If you remember, and I know you do, but it's like Dr. Talley used to do in his class in 1 Corinthians, and I think it was because he was teaching a bunch of lugheads, but he would often review with us, and it would sometimes drive me crazy because I was like, come on, let's get to the next thing. And in his wisdom, Dr. Talley knew that we needed to hear the same thing again and again and again and again. He was an excellent professor. And one of the things that made him excellent is because of his review. <laughs> he would just not allow us to forget what he had already said. And he would say it again and again and again. By the way, you do that as a parent. How many times do you say to your children again and again and again and again, hoping that at one point in time it will take? I think the Lord is the same way with us. I was in a discussion with a minister years ago, and we were talking about the New Testament epistles that Paul wrote, and he said, that, what do you think about the epistles? What's your general impression? And I said, well, there's a lot of repetition. The same things over and over and over again. And I said, why do you think that is? And he said, because we are stubborn people. We are stiff-necked people. We need to hear it over and over and over and over again. I want to remind you where we've been. We've taken a look at verse 12, and I've said to you that there is a difference between the term children in verse 12 and the term children in verse 13. That the term children in verse 12 refers to all believers, and he uses the phrase little children over and again in the letter. And he's talking to all believers at that point. So he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. And all God's people said, hallelujah. I no longer bear the penalty of my sin. We could just close in prayer and go home. But we won't. We said that in verse 13, he introduces us, John does, to different stages of spiritual growth. And we started with children because we wanted to see the difference in the terminology. That in verse 12, he uses the term technion, which refers to born ones. He's talking to all believers. That's how he closes the book out by the way, which is probably one of the most interesting ways to close out a book I have ever seen. As we get to John chapter 5, we will see that. But then we looked at the term children in verse 13, and we saw, hey, it's a different word. And so when you have a different word, do you just go, well, it, he meant the same thing? No. We have to take a look at it, and we say, well, 
the word is paideon in the Greek. Isn't that a cool word to say, paideon? Pie, I like pie. You like pie? Just think about it. I'm talking about real pie. Like apple pie, pumpkin pie, pecan pie. Anytime you want to make me a pecan pie, you don't even have to pray about it. Just start making it. All right? Paideon is the term that John uses. It refers to one who needs instruction. Uh, one who needs, I like the best word I like, is guidance. They need guidance. And children of the faith need guidance. Those who come to Christ uh, early on, they need someone to guide them, to instruct them, to direct them. And it doesn't need to be mindless. There needs to be thought with that. One of the things I appreciated about George Morange uh, at Southeastern Bible College, I really felt like, and I know he still does, um, because he's sitting right there, and as far as I know, his mind is as clear as can be, he had a great systematic approach to the Scriptures, which I did not appreciate until I was older. He understood theology, and he was able to systematically guide you through it. We need to appreciate those people that can do that. Children need to be instructed in the Word of God so that they will grow and develop. One of the temptations that can happen to someone who is young in the faith is to listen more to the words of man than the Word of God. In fact, there's a lot of confusion with children of the faith. Mainly because they listen, especially in these, these days we live in, to so many preachers and teachers. There's a smorgasbord and it's like, well, yeah, I heard that from him and I heard this from him. Which is right? And so you have these children that are trying to work crossword puzzles and they don't, are not quite ready for that just Yet, And so it's critical that we as parents, number one, when, when our children come to Christ, that we have a systematic approach to teaching them the Word of God, that we are not completely relying on the church to do that. Does that make sense? That the Lord has given, first of all, to us as spiritual uh, fathers and mothers, the privilege of being able to put God's Word into the hearts and to the lives of our children. And we could all have done that better, and we can all do better with that. And if you have grandchildren, it's never too young, because sooner or later they are going to be introduced to the world and the system of the world and the language of the world, and they are going to be massively confused. And they may pray a prayer of salvation when they're seven or eight and they're introduced to evolution at some point in time. They're like, hey, why isn't this true? Why is abortion not okay? You know, it, it can be confusing for those young in the faith. And so we looked at that word, paideon, and we said it talks about these that needed to have further instruction. But it also tells us something John does here in this text, that these um, children were intimately acquainted with the father. That's the word there knows, the word gnosko. They were intimately acquainted with the Father. That is the language of the text. They were close in fellowship with the Father. But even though they were close in fellowship with the Father, they needed to be instructed 
and they needed to be guided through the faith. And so we devoted our attention with children to um, the difference between the terminology, but also we focused as well on the need that children have for guidance and for instruction. That's the term he uses in verse uh, 13. Just like as parents, hopefully you are giving guidance and instruction to your children. Hopefully you are doing that. I hope you're not relying on the world to do that. Because the world already has a foothold in the, life of the lives of these children like never before. There's so much information coming out and it's constant. And they look at it on their phones constantly. Young people are like this. I was at a ballpark this weekend, but adults are doing like that too. It's just, just so much information to process. So John here speaks to the fact that these children, while needing instruction, they have an intimacy and fellowship with the Father. Which then we went back to the beginning of verse 13 and talked one week about fathers. And what he says in verse 13 about fathers, he says in verse 14 about fathers. You remember, the wording was no different. But there is a difference, I think, between what he says about fathers, I mean children, and what he says about fathers. He uses the same term, term the term gnosko, in verse 13 and verse 14 about fathers... But I agree with the theologians who say that John here is referring to, using the pronoun him, referring to the second person of the Trinity. That their fellowship then is focused, their knowledge is focused on the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. That they are in close fellowship with him. Um, I like what it says. Notice verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him. You know Christ, who has been from the beginning. And then you have the same thing that is said in verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning, which is a reference to Jesus Christ. The question becomes, in your fellowship, is there evidence that you have the same desire to know the Son? I mentioned this, and I think it's worth repeating that when I think about the Trinity, one God and three persons, when I think of the Father, I, I think of the Old Testament. Now, the Son and the Spirit are there as well, but I think of the Old Testament. I think of Israel. When I think of the second person of the Trinity, I think of the Gospels. I think of the life of Christ on earth, the Father present the Spirit present, obviously, but the focus of the Gospels is on the Son. And then after Acts chapter 2, then I think the attention of the church needs to be turned to the Spirit. Obviously, you still have the Father and the Son that are discussed, but I think it's important to consider. We're not saying there's three gods. We're saying there's one God and three persons. But to appreciate... The role of the Son, one must become familiar with the Gospels. 
In fact, it's interesting that in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul gives us his heart as it relates to knowing the Son. Notice what it says. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, it says that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Do you get that? I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to suffer like the Lord suffered. (laughs) Who says that? He says being conformed to his death. You want to know the Son? Read the Gospels. Read what Jesus did when he was here on earth. I wish I would have paid attention better in school. Our classes at Southeastern Bible College were at insane times. Class started at 7.30 in the morning. I was late to my fair share of classes, but there was a little fear about being late to the president's class. Just something about that term, president, makes you go, Ooh. And so Dr. Callum taught the life of Christ. He was the president of the school while I was at Southeastern Bible College. He taught the life of Christ on Thursday mornings from 7.30 to 9.20. How does that sound to you? Long. Somebody said long. It was long. I mean, they, we had people sleeping in that class. I don't know if I slept. Might have dozed off a bit at times. But one of the things that I came away with in Dr. Callum's class that I thought about years later was that man loved the life of the Lord Jesus. In his class, he took us to the Gospels because that's where you find the life of the Lord Jesus. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, one of the things I appreciated most about my grandfather was I think as he got older, if I would have showed him this verse in 1 John, I think he would have said, that's right then. As I've gotten older, I appreciate my salvation more. I appreciate What Jesus Christ delivered me from more. When I was first saved, I was just glad I wasn't going to hell. I was thankful. Yes. But as you grow and mature in your relationship and in your fellowship, you come to understand, wow, Lord, you did all that for me. What an amazing Lord that we serve. And so my suggestion to us is that we would spend time in the Gospels. If we want to know more about our Lord and Savior, and it might enhance our fellowship with Him. You think about the investment of our Lord in the lives of the disciples. I just wonder, I don't know, but I just wonder how many times in Peter's life did he recall an event that he had with the Lord. I wonder how much those disciples just drew off of what the Lord had taught them. Like in the area of provision. 
he multiplied five loaves and two fish for about fifteen to 20,000 people, you're probably not going to forget that event. And so when he says he's the God of all provision, the disciples were like, yeah, we saw that. So I just think becoming more familiar and being reminded more often of what our Lord and our Savior did while he was here on earth can help us in our fellowship with him. Well, this morning, we want to take a look at young men. Young men. So we've talked about children, those who need instruction, those who need guidance in their faith. And by the way, the instruction and the guidance, I don't think ever is something that's just dropped. All of us need instruction and guidance all of the time. I think the difference is, for some of us, we've heard the same things over and over and over again. And we're like, I've heard that. But it's okay. How many times have you repeated the message to your teenager when they take the keys off the key ring and they head out, be careful, be safe. Well, you say it over and over and over again, right? Because you mean it. So, as children of God, all of us need instruction and guidance and continual reminders. So, we've looked at children. We've looked at fathers who are spiritually mature. And I I wanted to share this with you before we go to young men. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me. I was having um, a devotional time with my staff last week. We meet once a month or so when we're all available to meet. And I feel compelled to share with them. I don't preach and I don't go 45 or 50 minutes. But I do talk to them about things the Lord is showing me. And I... This passage has so consumed me that I was sharing with them about spiritual fathers. And I gave you a handout on that and what a spiritual father, the characteristics of a spiritual father. I hope you kept that. Didn't make paper airplanes out of it. But if you did, I'd like to see your plane. Anyway, so I'm sharing with the staff. And I said, I've been thinking about this spiritual father thing a little more. I said, I think there's three characteristics about spiritual fathers that... I just can't get out of my mind that that the Lord is just probably just teaching fad. The one is that a spiritual father is always dependent on the Lord. You know people like that? You talk with them about a problem. Next thing you know, they're saying, are you depending on the Lord? He's so good. You know people like that. A spiritual father is dependent on the Lord, I, I was thinking that's, that's true. I know people like that. But I also know that spiritual fathers are not only depending on the Lord, but there's a humility with them that's present. It's just something I've observed. In fact, I was thinking about a verse, 
and I want to read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but it just really spoke to me about that humility piece. When Paul writes in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. He doesn't say don't look out for your own personal interest. But you're not to do that first. And I'm like, people that are mature spiritually, they have that. I've noticed it in their life. And there's a third element I noticed, and that's a daily faith. These people have a daily faith that is, I mean, it's contagious. I mean, if you're not there, you want to be there. It's those kind of people, right? They have a shirt on that you want to wear. You're like, I like that shirt. I want to be like you. So I was thinking about Hebrews 11. We don't have to go any further. The Bible has the examples for us. People that did unusual things. Rahab the harlot. Unusual things. Noah. He built a boat, no rain, builds this boat. And we're not talking about a tiny boat. Massive boat. I think the one that really just kind of jumps off the pages, they all do, don't get me wrong, but, but Abraham and his son. There's just like the faith. We need to trust the Lord. The wisdom that Solomon gives in that, in the verses that we put on our refrigerator, that we memorized years ago, trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. Many can quote it. How many live it? That was a little commercial. I had forgotten. Thank you, Lord. So now we go to young men. In the original language, that phrase referred to servants and soldiers who were between the ages of 20 and 40. And we're not putting ages on the stages of spiritual growth. We can't do that. But that's the idea of the term in its original uh, usage. That's the picture that you have. Of young men, those who were between 20 and 40. And what's interesting in verse 13 is he says one thing about them. But what he says about them jumps off the page. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He proclaims them victors. You're victor. You're victor. There's victory in your life. And notice what he says. He says you're an overcomer over the evil one. The idea here is our adversary, the enemy. And listen to this. One who is out to destroy lives. Are you listening to me? One that is out to destroy lives. How many lives of Christians are destroyed between the times they are 20 and 40? 
we're just going to use that age range. There's a lot of destruction going on in the church today. And by the way, it's not silent. It's out there. People see. How many families do you know that are being destroyed today? That are Christian families. Where there is not victory, but there's defeat. Where the attitude is not one of dependence on the Lord, but look at me and look at my needs and my wants. And hello, I'm alive. Anybody notice? So when you read this, for John to say of these young men that they were victors, he doesn't tell us what their condition was, but he says, hey, you're victors. Because when you're going through a spiritual battle, it looks like a battle. Any of you ever been in a spiritual battle? It's a battle. I don't know what your thoughts are of this, but that battle begins in the mind. Could be. It begins in the mind. So no wonder Paul over and over again talks about the mind. We know that we need the armor of God, right? To protect ourselves. That's what the Bible tells us. In Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to with what? Withstand the schemes of the enemy, the devil. The one, listen to me, the one that is out to destroy your life. Fathers and mothers out to destroy your lives. How difficult is it to keep a family together these days? You know, 60% now of families are destroyed. I think I've run into something that may be helpful to us as we all who are married, listen to this, all who are married go through this journey of marriage, and it's a journey, and it's filled with all kinds of things. Some things are, oh yeah, I figured that was coming. Then some things are like, I did not know that was coming. So he writes to these young men, and he says, you're victors. So it's a natural question, well, how, how in the world do these guys get to be victors? Well, aren't you glad for verse 14? He gives us insight into how they are victors. Notice what it says in verse 14. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. That's how they're victors. They're strong. You say, well, isn't there more than just being strong? Yeah, we'll get to it. The picture here is not of a young man who does this. I'm strong. It did refer to, the term did refer to, or does in that culture, physical strength. But it also referred to spiritual strength. I witnessed physical strength and the difference between one who is strong and many who want to be again. Out there on the side of our building, there is an area that the youth put together. And um, there's kind of like this brick retaining wall kind of thing over there. And um, 
they're these concrete little things. They're not little, but they're, 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 they, they remind me of, I guess they're pavers. Is that what they're called? Concrete pavers? I don't know. I don't do that kind of work full time. But I was out there that day, and I was watching some of us who are more mature pick up those concrete pavers. And they were pretty heavy. Chris Laughlin, my brother in the Lord, ordered the heaviest ones, I think. But those things were heavy. And when you went down to pick it up, it was like, whoa, I'm 50-something years old. Well, then there's a couple of young people there. Braden was there. Alex was there. And they went to pick those things up, and they're like, hey. All of us older men are looking and going, I remember when I was like that. And we're trying to be like that again. And that's why when they went home, they went home like this. And when we went home, we went home like this. Strong. You think about youth, you think of strength. They're strong. You remember those days when you were strong? I've been reminded a time or two over the last several years that I am not as strong as I used to be. So there is the physical component to this word. But primarily, obviously, in this context, it's talking about spiritual strength. Spiritual strength. We need strength to make it through the Christian life. But the strength that we need does not come from ourselves. It's not, hey, muster it up and you can make it through. I've sat with people who've had that mentality. People who didn't know the Lord. I've sat in their living rooms and I've watched them try to muster up the strength to go through a rebellious child or the death of a son or a daughter. And you know what their language is? We can do it. I remember sitting in one living room thinking, no, you can't do it. And I wanted to say that, right? Obviously, I didn't. But I wanted to. The only way you're going to make it through this is the Lord. How many of you are thankful that in the trials of life, as big as they are at times, we can make it through because of the strength of the Lord? It's His strength. It's not ours. But they're strong. You say, well... Where does that strength come from? It comes from the Lord, but it comes from the Word of God abiding in them. So you keep reading that. He says, I've written to you young men because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. It dwells in you. That's the, that is the picture here. It dwells in you. And let me talk to you about that for just a moment. John says they are strong because the word of God indwells them. This is not a casual glance at scripture. Okay, I don't know how much you're going to enjoy this next two or three minutes. But I'm going to deliver it to you in a loving way. And know that I am looking at myself and have had to do that as I've studied through this. This is not memorizing a verse or two. That's not what he's talking about. The word here is logos. It's the whole package. (laughs) So as I 
sat in my office and I'm studying. I'm like, whoa. This is not a casual glance. This is not just memorizing a phrase or two or a verse or two or a passage or two. No, these young men are strong because they have all of it abiding in them. They have it all. You say, that's impossible. No, no it's not. One theologian wrote, these young men, their lives were saturated with the word. It permeated them. So immediately I had to think about my own life. What if we had to, this is a question. What if we all had to give an account of the 168 hours we spent this last week? (laughs) Right? I mean, look, guys, I'm not going to jump off in a legalistic train, okay? I'm just saying we need to think about what it says. Certainly, John expected his audience to. But if we're going to be spiritual fathers one day... There's no getting around. We need this book to saturate and permeate our lives in such a way. Listen to me. This is the test of that. One of the tests of that is when someone comes to you who's having a problem, what do you tell them? I'm having a problem with my wife. I'm having a problem with my husband. I'm having a problem with my children. One of the first thoughts might be, who doesn't? But then beyond that thought, what does the Bible say about a spiritual husband and a spiritual wife and children? What does it say? You know what's happened so much today? This is a side note. This has happened, and it's happening. People are looking to the wisdom of men more than they're looking To the wisdom of God. And they are saying. We can figure it out. And I'm talking about Christians. The word of God needs. To so permeate and saturate our lives. It's like biscuits and gravy. You like biscuits and gravy. You need to learn. When I get a biscuit on my plate, I don't want it just to be a little gravy on top. I want that gravy to permeate that biscuit. That sounds good right about now. It's 1140. You getting hungry? I want that gravy all through there. That's why I had heart surgery. Praise God, right? I wanted all of it. All of it. Give me all that gravy. It's like when you eat French toast. Or pancakes. There's some that put a dab of syrup. Man, I want that whole thing. I put all of it on there. Guys, that's the picture. I don't just need little doses of the Word of God. I need the whole thing. I need all of it. 
Listen to this. You don't have to turn. It's a book that probably does not get read a whole lot. Ezekiel. You remember what the Lord tells Ezekiel to do with his words? What did he say? I want you to eat them. It's your diet. By the way, his commission was during the time of the Babylonian captivity. and the, His audience is described as obstinate. I mean, there aren't people who are going, yeah, I can't wait to hear Ezekiel. I mean, listen, it's the same today. And how many churches where the word is opened, I mean, it, it's hard stuff, Okay. I don't pretend to go, well, this is not hard to hear. I understand it's hard to hear. But if I was sitting in that seat right there, and David or John or George or Dr. Hughes speaking, I have no right, as long as they're opening the Word of God, to shut them down. Well, when you read chapter 2 of uh, the commission or the call of, of Ezekiel, you wouldn't be going, yeah, I can't wait to do this. I mean, listen to some of this language. I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. Think there are any of those in the church today? Yeah, maybe a couple. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord God is for them, whether they listen or not. For they are a rebellious house. Got me to thinking. I don't know how you're going to hear this. Is the church rebellious today? In any form or fashion. Well, skipping down, you can go home and read. I encourage you to read chapters two and three. Great chapters. Listen to what it says. Son of man, listen to me. When I'm speaking to you, do not be rebellious. <laughs> I like the what he says. He's telling Ezekiel, hey, look, you don't do that. You don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and on the back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe, judgment. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know what? The Lord expects of us. He expects us to be like these young men. And he expects that the word of God would indwell us. It would so permeate our lives that that when we're talking to someone and they begin to talk about problems in their life, we're going, that passage says this and that passage says that. Let me encourage you with what God says. Well, they're strong because the word of God abides in them. And then he closes it with the way he began it in 13. Because of that, you've overcome the evil one. That language, overcome, just as a side note, just for you to know, it's in a lot of John's literature. 
You don't necessarily find it other places. Although the disciples were encouraged by the Lord himself in the upper room. These things I've spoken to you. Remember, this is the disciples minus Judas. I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Isn't it great to know the Lord wants us to have peace? In the world you will have tribulation, <laughs> suffering, right? It's happening. How many of you, yeah, that's happening. But take courage. I've overcome the world. It's not that he's waiting to overcome the world. He's done it. He's done it. That's why there can be victory. And the Lord's our encouragement in that. Did you know that in the letter of the Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, the letter to the seven churches, each letter at the end of the letter, there is the phrase, He who overcomes. He who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, he overcomes, he overcomes, he overcomes. Seven times. And who's he writing to? Believers. Hey guys, you know what it tells me? I don't have to live in defeat. I don't have to do that. There are some that seem to have that mentality of defeatism. Even in the Christian church. Guys, listen, we're, the Bible tells us we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. So your family's falling apart? I'm sorry. But the Lord can give you victory in the midst of the battle. But it's only going to happen... As we allow the word of God to indwell us. Look what Howard Hendricks wrote. The Bible is the divine means of maturing spiritually. I like what he says. There is no other way. That's it. Close with a couple of thoughts from different folks. George Mueller, who was known for his strong faith, said, The first three years after my conversion, I neglected the word of God. After that, it became my food for each day. I read and read, and it became my delight. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said this, Read the Bible and read it again. Though you may not have commentary, pray and read and read and pray for a little from God is better than a great deal for man. Let's pray. Father, we are in this place today in need of maybe a little change in our diet. Maybe we need a little more spiritual food. Pray that you would help us, Father. If there's one thing I know for sure, 
in my life, when I've asked you to help me remember, you're faithful. (laughs) So I pray you would help us to remember how important it is to eat your word, to consume it, to have it so permeate our lives that it's just contagious. Help us not to be arrogant about it. Help us to be humble and dependent. Father, I thank you for each one that's here in this room today. Father, if there are some that don't know you, I pray that they could come to know you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to understand that you paid the penalty for their sin. Father, I want to pray this morning that you would help all of us in this room who belong to you to assess properly where we are. Because the goal is to be a spiritual father or mother. That would not only have intimacy with the father and the son, but that would be men and women who are wise in their estimation of things because their grid is through the word of God. Father, help us to be honest, and at the same time, help us to be thankful people that you did not leave us alone, that your spirit indwells us, and the comfort is that your spirit is going to lead us as we face the battles, is going to lead us into all of the truth. I pray for all of us that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray all of these things. Amen. Guys, it's been very good to be with you today. There is no closing song unless you would like me to sing. That indicates you would not like me to sing. I do want to encourage you, if you're visiting with us at Grace, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. And I want to make mention of the fact that on June the 5th, we will have our New to Grace class. And um, you can stay afterwards after church. We'll feed you and then introduce you to uh, Grace and all the workings here at Grace and what the Lord is doing. So I trust you uh, have a great afternoon. Get you some biscuits and gravy and uh, enjoy the rest of the day as we look forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior. Uh, Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.